Hello, friends. I'm coming at you today with a conversation that I recorded earlier this year. Two notes about the conversation, and then I'll just kind of let it roll. The first one is uh, my friend has a relatively small, like, uh, known internet presence, and I'm a big fan of, like, maintaining internet anonymity if one can. I feel like it's too late for me. You know, way way back in like middle school, I started buying my domain, and I have like Jamie Sinclair at like a bajillion different web platforms, including Jamie Sinclair at gmail dot com and Jamie Sinclair dot com and things like that. And it's just like, you know, uh, I feel like it's too late. But for friends, where I'm like, hey, you're basically not online. I like to keep it that way. So I added uh, just a little like pitch shift thing to anonymize uh, his voice slightly. So it will sound odd, but actually like within a minute of listening to it, it sounds, it actually sounds kind of cool. And like, it's really easy to listen to. Uh, The second note though, is part of what initially delayed this is I was trying to clean up the audio. I have one pretty good mic for podcasting, but not a great second one. And the audio wasn't super clear. I have actually rectified that problem since and have just not had time to do much podcasting. But uh, all that to say, it's not the clearest audio, but it's a good friend, good conversation. If you've got an hour or two and you just want to listen to a couple of fellas chat, here I present to you on life. Yo, so thanks for coming on. This is fun. I've been looking forward to this. Same. I know you enjoy podcasts. That's something we've talked about in the past. I'm curious what a couple of your top recommendations are these days. And then even if you've ever, like, I I know I asked you to do this, but have you thought about like recording podcasts before? Like, let's just explore like the world of podcasting briefly. So yeah, yeah, what are your top recommendations these days? For podcasts? Um, Oh man, that's like saying, you know, what are my recommendations for music? Right. Well, even, even more specifically, you know, I'll tell people I like country music, but even that is way too broad because it's like very few songs with a very few artists I think are actually good. Okay. Um, so with podcasts, even a given podcast, I don't, I wouldn't generally recommend any given podcast. There are choosy even within the podcast. Yes. That makes me think of the way I interact with. Uh, some of my favorites, like Lex Friedman and Joe Rogan, mm-hmm. I listen to uh, a small minority of episodes. Right. Yep. Yeah. Matt said, so there's only two podcasts that I actually listen to every, pretty much every episode, um, Planet Money and Reply All. Still. Um, okay. So I used to, and I've like, ah. Uh... When the one guy left, JP or something, Yeah. I was so bummed because he was such a great same such a great personality so curious and interested yeah so the episodes with the new guy i generally skip them i just am not as interested but the other guy um goldman something he's i find him pretty interesting yep so when he's on a podcast i do listen to those so so yeah that one actually i've I've like tapered off same um which is really disappointing because they just find like the most interesting stories yeah i used to like anticipate Reply All mm-hmm. and Planet Money episodes, and I actually forgot about this podcast. <laughs> Thank you for reminding me. I'll have to pull it up. I'm yeah. sure they still produce some good content. Um, yeah, this is in Planet Money on the way over here. I'm curious, though, because there's other... I can pull up my list here. Um, 
Oh, Courageous Parenting is a good one. Um, have you heard of um, Order of Man? No. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's another good one. Again, I, there's very few that I think are worthwhile, but the ones that are good are really good. Right. Um, he's like an ex-army guy. That's like a okay. Go get him type. Is it like uh, you know, like the Jocko Willink yep. stuff? Yep. It's similar vibe. Very similar. Now, is um, he like uh, is the Order of Man? Is he a born again Christian or is very much or like what's his yes? Worldview, yep, he's a believer. Um, does not lead with that. Okay. Um, which is fine. Just yeah. an observation. Um, you wouldn't know it unless you really listen to a bunch of material. And you're like, um, ah, yeah. But the, what he talks about is, is not common. You know, how to lead in the home, how to lead in your community, how to like, you know, how to, how to own your own life, like how to do things with excellence, how to have honor, integrity, okay. how to, you know, how to like live with purpose. So a lot of that stuff which you find that material out there. Right. But he's like, that's what he talks about. It sounds like a, so Jordan Peterson is fascinating, mm -hmm. but often when I listen to him, he's so, uh, he gets a little lofty and circuitous. This guy, what's the name of the order of man? Fellow? What's his name? Ryan Mickler. Okay. Mickler sounds a lot. He sounds like the Jacko Willink version of Jordan, like Jordan Peterson speaking to personal responsibility and, Whereas Willink more applies things to like business, like right. business lessons. It's, it's inspiring, but yep. he sounds like the, the accessible, clear yeah. on the nose. Yes. Peterson. Like the, do these five things in your home, like yeah. how to, you That's know, cool. improve your marriage, like do these things. He's a very, very like specific, um, on what you can do to improve yourself. Mm. Um, that said, he gets a large following of guys who just kind of live to improve themselves. Sure. And. I think that's one of the, um, one of the pitfalls for, for men is that we just love to improve ourselves right? and not those around us. That's a good point. There's like this weird, uh, tension. I don't, tension is not the, wrong, the right word. I don't know where, where you almost, you realize weaknesses and shortcomings and you want to, to grow and improve yourself, but it can lead to an overfixation on yourself, which kind of like misses the point. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Like, well, I want to talk more about manhood in a moment, but maybe back to podcasting broadly. Mm -hmm. So you're familiar with Rogan and Friedman. Yeah. Uh, yep. Do you like ever listen to their stuff aside from when I link to it once in a while? I only listen to Rogan when I find a reference through someone else. Yeah. I don't actually subscribe to his podcast. Did you listen to his interview with Elon Musk sometime in the past like two years? But it, oh no, probably a clip on YouTube. It was good. It was good. Like I'll listen to sections of his podcast, um, yeah. parts that make the news. Musk is actually Musk is interesting. He's so unique. Mm -hmm. So are you familiar with Dan Carlin's Hardcore History? No. Okay, it's brilliant. He does actually what I. Most enjoyed of his, I don't think is available for free anymore. That said, everybody listening should pay for it. I, th I think it's uh, it's a public, freely available podcast. However, he archives episodes after like 10 and you have to go to his website and pay for them, mm. which is totally fine. I mean, he puts a ton of work into it and he did a series called The Blueprint for Armageddon, maybe, I don't know, four or five years ago. And... It was maybe six or seven episodes, but the episodes are like three to five hours each. 
and he's going through and he does he, he's just sharing history so he shares stories and he, in that blueprint for again he's talking about world war one and largely he focuses on the the trench warfare but i mean he 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 gets into the backstory and talks about the assassin assassination of uh Ferdinand or whatever the Austrian Hungarian not wow so it's been a little while since I listened to it <laughs> but like the thing about Carlin is he he has this like passion that is contagious mm-hmm. and so it really brings the the history to life mm-hmm. I, he's also done some stuff on Persian the Persian Empire and like even the Cuban Missile Crisis I'm thinking more recently he typically only drops an episode every like two or three times a year because um, there's a lot of back work into them. And I think the episodes for Blueprint of Armageddon are maybe a couple bucks each, but amazing. Uh, yeah, 100%. In, like, fascinating stuff. So many interest. Like, I've studied World War I uh, in different times and, like, different focuses. I would say, like, thinking about the air warfare in World War I, super interesting. But his focus is trench warfare. And I don't know. He, like, really you feel like you understand what it would feel like to just be stuck in these trenches with disease and sickness and shells going off and mm-hmm. machine gun nests. And how do you get out of the trench? And it's just really mm, good. Anywho, Dan Carlin has an addendum podcast where he, rather than just sharing uh, his main podcast, he's just telling the story. It's, it's solo, but in the addendum, he has conversations with people and sometime in the past Four months, I believe maybe in December-ish, so about four or five months ago, mm-hmm. he had Elon Musk and another engineer from SpaceX on, and they were discussing, like, aeronautical technology in World War II and just generally the importance of engineering to military conflict over the ages. And it was fascinating because you're like, here's this dude who is, uh, like – like just like a, a troller in some ways, also the wealthiest human being in, in terms of net worth on the planet ever. Well, ever being relative, the net worths of like emperors and stuff back in the day, it, right. it's like they enslaved like whole regions of the world, which is much more powerful than Musk, but you get my gist. And, but he's so interesting. And he just like, he's talking about uh turbo charged, like, you know, propeller engines and things like that. And it's, it's really interesting because I'm like, I can't imagine Bezos or Buffett or somebody like that having this conversation, but Musk, how did I even get into Musk? Oh, the Rogan interview. So you haven't listened to much. Uh, What about, do you ever do current event stuff or do you kind of try to avoid current events? Yeah, I pretty much avoid, I don't like something specific. Um, When you mean like current events, like read news, do you listen to any news podcasts? I'm curious. Um, so there's only one news source that I listen to. Okay. Um, and is a he's a talk radio guy out of Philly. Um, oh, so he's like a regional. Yeah. Well, he's on um, XM Radio. Okay. So he's nationwide or global. I don't know where the reach is, but um, he was on AM Radio. He did a contract with XM like a decade ago. He's been there since. Um, and he's the only. Uh, in my opinion, the only legitimate political voice um, out there. What uh, what draws you to him? What makes you feel like, hey, I can trust his take to a degree? Um, uh, as his his show tagline is opinionated, not doctrinaire. 
uh, and that's really hard to come by. Hmm. He is very opinionated, but he's also very middle of the road. Now, he's very left on some issues, and he's very right on others. Um, but on the whole, so you might listen to a half-hour segment and be like, oh my gosh, he's like a total right-wing whatever. Um, and in that brief moment, he, he might be. Right, but on a different um, issue, it could be... Yeah, right. he'd be on the other. So he's very... And he'll pull in guests from all over. Um, that's cool. And so he's just so... I don't know, he's so um, fair, I guess is the word. I don't know if that's a... Fair, but also maybe like... I think is really attractive these days. And it's part of why like even a Rogan, I think blew up in popularity mm -hmm. is there is a sense of whether you agree with him or not, he's interested in hearing your point of view and he's actually open to reasoning with you and trying to figure out what makes you tick. And it sounds like this dude you're describing is similar. Like I, uh, and it's not like it's per se a good thing to have some positions that are right wing and some that are left wing. But it's symptomatic that he's actually open to considering each issue. And yes. he's not just like in some sort of lockstep partisan reactionary yes. posture. And these aren't his views per se. He's really good at it. You would be hard pressed to know who he votes for. Ah, that's kind of cool. Which is interesting um, because you actually, from listening to him, you wouldn't know where he lands politically. Right. He is just well articulate on like the whole spectrum. Oh, that's cool. He can... He can create a good argument for a more left-wing view of something, yeah. and he could just as easily structure um, an argument from the right-wing side of things. I love that. Um, and love his that. ability to do that is just rare. Yeah. And so, for any anything mainstream, anything like present, um, I usually like see what his take is on it, um, or he'll find people that speak to that as well. The guests he have, um, you know, they're vetted and he's pretty picky about who he wants to talk with. Now his conversations with guests, are they typically like five minutes or 50 minutes? Like what's the approach? Um, I don't think five is bad per se, but I've, I've really over the years realized long form is so much more interesting to me because there's opportunity to develop thoughts. Like how does he go yep. about that? And that was one of his, um, one of, his reasons for going on to XM radio is that they give you flexibility. Mm. They give the host kind of, they give them flexibility over the structure of their program. And gotcha. so he was able to do more oh, that's cool. longer, like anywhere from like 15 to 40 minute interviews. Right. You can actually um, work through an idea, hear what somebody's trying to say. Yeah. The, yeah. the soundbite stuff is so unattractive to me. It's, it's like literally, even if the person says everything that I believe when people are just like spatting off, like mm -hmm. slogans. I'm mm -hmm. just like, uh, I, I like thinking I'm attracted to like meaningful thinking. That's part of what actually led to my interest in producing some stuff in the podcasting space was just to try to engage ideas and really wrestle through things and bring good. And in, in my case, as a Christian biblical, like ideas to this, not that I have everything figured out, but I'm like, let's actually wrestle with ideas and think through things. So that leads me to the last mm -hmm. component of the, the question I asked a minute ago. I mean, obviously I asked you to come on here and you're chatting with me. Like, have you ever felt like an impulse? Like, man, I'm consuming tons of great material. I want to write or speak or record or, or are you kind of like, ah, it's just not interesting to me. Like what's been your take as you've interacted with content? Have you ever felt writing is, is interesting to me? Okay. Um, like and a I, book or blogging? Um, book. Okay. 
Yeah. Yeah. The most compelling information, most compelling material that I, that I come across is, um, has been, uh, in like a series, like a, a teaching on a series of something on a given topic. Right. Um, or through book. Um, and those are the most impactful. Um, okay. So I think that's where, that's what most interests me. And if you did a book, would it be like somewhat autobiographical, memoir-esque, or would it be like kind of like addressing an issue that you find interesting? Or do you want to write a romantic comedy? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it would be right, right. What would, uh, you know, what stands the test of time? Um, something that I could, something that's, I go back to what, what's useful. What what's beneficial? Okay, yeah. Um, and what would be a benefit down the road? Um, I feel yeah. What people find useful in the decades to come? Um, yeah, the sort of timeless. You are um, a long-term thinker, which I appreciate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, what's gonna what's gonna be relevant after I'm gone? And that's what interests me. Okay. So, yeah, I'd write a book. There are different ideas. I would have on what I would want to write about. Um, yeah, one, there's, there is a, there's, there's a lot of like nuggets, I think, that get passed over. Um, so I thought about like writing a collection of nuggets. Right. Of, like, so so maybe slightly things. disparate, but connected by, wow, there's real value here. Exactly. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I've thought about writing before. Writing is daunting. It's, it's like a book that is Mm -hmm. It's just like a a pretty big undertaking. I'm impressed. Occasionally I'll come across people who've written like 50 books. I'm just Mm -hmm. like, do you just like turn out books in your sleep? Like, uh, I feel like when I go about creating something that's more than a few pages, by the time I'm like 10 pages in, I want to restart it. I, I don't know. Like, have you historically have you done any lengthy projects and if so how do you get past the i want to restart every five days thing i don't know or have you never really written something like that i'm not sure i have done that many i haven't written anything lengthy um yeah so it's not something that i've attempted uh it's interesting yeah uh it's impressive like i I do think there's a real so years ago, I believe it was a, a, a tech company and either their book or their name was like Signal versus Noise. I don't recall the, the name of the, the CEO, but he had uh, one of the principles he discussed was just ship it. And what he meant by that was you can like perpetually iterate and try to improve things. Mm-hmm. But at some level, we live in a real world. And if you actually want to have an impact and provide services that help people and that make a difference, you can't wait till your thing is perfect because you'll never arrive. You just got to say like, hey, this is functional. Ship it. And hey, we we can make a version 1.1 or 2.0, but just ship it. And it's helpful. And, and, And similarly, so my background 
like professionally is uh, software development and website development and things like that. And one of the concepts is uh, creating a minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. Because again, you can perpetually add cool features, redo things. And especially in the software world, technology mm-hmm. is changing so fast. You can start a project and if you're still working on it six months later, there's like uh, new versions of libraries that you've been working with and you can add, like, it's just like, it could, it is a never ending opportunity for improvement. But one of the things the tech world did a pretty good job of, and even if you recall, like Gmail was in beta for like a decade, which was probably a little over the top. But what the tech world embraced was let's make a product that works and just launch it. We'll just call it beta and we'll keep revising and improving and adding features. But don't wait until that's all been done before you can offer a functional product to the world. And so that that minimum viable product model, that idea of just ship it was helpful for me because I can get stuck in the... I want to redo. I want to redo. I, I thought of a better oh. way to do, and you never actually contribute anything. So I can get yes. stuck in that phase. I'm, so. I mean, I'm stuck there. That's where I would. Launching is hard for that reason. Um, yeah, I would do like basic video editing. Long time ago for my family. Yeah, like this annual thing that would come up, and we'd make a ten to fifteen minute video for the event. So there was a deadline. Right. Um, it's like an iMovie environment, and you're doing some edits. Yep, and... yep. And, you know, there's transitions, there's music and sound, and there's, you know, color correction. So there's, like, stuff that goes into it. And But to that end, there's always something a little bit better you can do. And maybe that sound would be better for that section, or that transition isn't, or shorten that clip a little bit. Or there's, like, constantly you can improve it. Right. Um, and if there wasn't a deadline, I would just get stuck in, and it's not quite ready yet. Uh, this, no, it's not, it's not real. It's good, but it's not great. Mm. Um, and I think with writing, I would have to figure out a way to get around that. Um, so without a deadline, I could just forever be, ah, it's, it's good, yeah. but no, it could be better. And that is part of why I've, I've, I've produced plenty of content over the years, including this podcast. And, but I've definitely tended to engage in media mediums however you want to pluralize that word that are like there isn't intended to be a sense of like perfect completion um for example podcasting there's a sense of like hey we're having a conversation we might miss some stuff we might make some mistakes but like whatever we're just having a conversation people are allowed to join i think that's like a worthwhile thing but there's something valuable about having a product where you have like a you know, you write drafts, you have rounds of revisions and edits and you like produce something that's, but you can get stuck in this. You never actually finish it, but we can also, we could end up in a culture where all the content we interact with are, you know, tweets and TikTok videos where everything is just kind of like half, I won't finish that thought, but like not, not well, well, uh, not really like we, we could lose a sense of like mm-hmm. excellence, but there's that tension because then in pursuit of excellence, you can get hamstrung. And, mm-hmm. and I feel like podcasting grabs a hold of a bit of a happy medium. For example, I rarely make edits uh, in, in the you know 25 episodes or whatever, but I have a couple of times where I was like, oh, I totally messed that up. Two mm-hmm. episodes, dude, two episodes. I entirely re-recorded. The whole thing. Whole thing. Like I finished an episode, oh, wow. and in both cases, it was I felt like 
So I can be very cynical when I'm not in like a healthy headspace where I'm not kind of like, okay, my eyes are in Jesus ultimately and in the midst of the brokenness, like there's hope, God's at work. When I kind of, well, it's a bit of that Ecclesiastes Mm-hmm. Under the sun, you you kind of start losing sight of God, and you're just focused on what's happening around. It's like, ah. and I can get really like cynical and negative. And I think my observations are often valid, but they're only really helpful when there is some sort of Jesus-rooted divine optimism. Because otherwise, if you just look around and you observe the brokenness and you just complain about it, like, that's not helpful. And so, yeah, one of my episodes, I was kind of just griping about people being hypocrites. And I think, like, all my points were good points. And, and I, I launched, I did ship it, but I re-recorded it because I was like, you know what, this is helpful. But the way I did that, I was not really approaching this in a ultimately Jesus-rooted, there's hope. I don't even know if I ever referenced Jesus in the episode, but certainly when I communicate, that is my hope. And sometimes I just slip into it, like I just start complaining, and that's not godly. Uh, or I had a com- one of the conversations I did with a friend via video chat. Similarly, I think we made a lot of good points, but I, I felt like I was being a little too just slipping into like complaining, and mm-hmm. that's not as complaining sinful. Yeah. It, it's yeah. easy though. I don't know. What's well, your personality like? Do you like if it weren't for Jesus, would you just be like a pie in the sky, everything's gonna work out, or would you be more of a cynic and like everybody's like a hypocrite and like what's your tendency? Yeah. I tend towards the cynical aspect. I probably do as well. Okay. Uh, it's easy for me to spot problems, and something I try to be aware of is that like that's just not helpful. Right. To like point out problems generally isn't helpful. Right. Um. So, I just because there are plenty of problems to identify. Yeah. It's it's where can you point out like, hey, here's a solution to something. Right. right. Here's a problem, and this is this could be a way to try and fix it. So if I don't have a way to try and fix a problem, I generally won't mention the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, at least I tried to walk that out. Right. Um. Yes, yeah, so I don't. I don't I know what. You. Yeah. That that's so for whatever reason possibly more so than you i find political questions and topics fascinating but then also because of the way i'm wired i very quickly like despair and get cynical and so it's it's been an interesting journey because <laughs> i have people who frequently like message me about ongoing like political happenings and i have to be like I'm like how do i frame this in a helpful way that's encouraging but also Man, we live in a really kind of depressing political landscape at the moment. I don't know, especially if you live in New York State. So it's like an interesting, I don't know, it's, it's a tension. Because I also think this, if everyone who has like godly wisdom to contribute just checks out because it's just such a messed up process, mm-hmm. I don't know if that'll help it. <laughs> no, that's, well, that's how we got in the mess we're in. Exactly. But I also am like, but if I just like focus on this all the time, I'll just turn cynical. Like, so I have to find this like healthy balance where I'm like engaging and staying aware and entering the fray, but also not getting just like consumed by it because I then lose sight of, I don't know, 
I don't know if that makes sense, mm-hmm. but it is something I have learned. So what I've done is I don't mind staying on top of current events, but I do avoid like uh, most talk radio-esque or 24-hour news-esque inputs. Um, I don't listen to, you know, Rush. Well, he's deceased now, isn't he? Rush Limbaugh passed away. I think uh, oh, wow. it's embarrassing. Yeah. I can't remember specifically. Yeah, I'm positive. I remember uh, Bo mm-hmm. Snerdly, some of his comments after the fact. Bo was like a, a, his like right-hand man for decades. Um, and, and he had lots of positive comments. But so like Rush, I used to listen to Rush, Limbaugh, uh, you know, Hannity. And then even more like five, six years ago when like Trump was rising, I found – who's that – Short, fast-talking dude, Ben Shapiro. Okay. Um, like, what I enjoyed about Shapiro was I don't always agree with him, but I did feel like he tried to give Trump a fair shake. Uh, he disliked a lot of what Trump brought to the table, but also appreciated some of what Trump brought to the table. He actually had this segment on his show called Good Trump, Bad Trump. And I was just like, so many people at the time seemed to be like MAGA, 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 or Trump derangement syndrome. Have you heard that term? No. It's just people who I understand, like they respond negatively to Trump. I get that. I don't like Trump myself. But like there seem to be many people, and by many I mean like millions and millions, including a lot of conservatives who kind of began to represent the never Trump camp. They didn't just disagree with some of what Trump brought to the table or even most of it. They like went insane and they stopped being able to think and they stopped being able to be like, well, but this thing is useful that he just said. Or It's like they just became deranged. And so I appreciated Shapiro, but I also found quickly even, I would say after, once Trump was elected into 2017, or not, yeah, elected and uh, installed, uh, inaugurated, it just turned into, you know, interacting with the tweets of the day and you know, I was like, this isn't, this is just getting me caught up in that cynical. I'm like, I, I don't need this. I, I, it was helpful for a season when he was very clearly identifying in the midst of like a election year, like, Hey, this is some helpful stuff. This is some stuff I disagree with. Good Trump, bad Trump, so to speak. Like that was helpful. But then I found it just got me started getting me caught up in the whatever. So I, I, unsubscribe from that podcast you know you gotta like guard well it makes me think of that that bible verse uh guard your heart for out of it come flows the river of life for the wellspring of life uh there's this sense of i think that that verse i remember when i was young it was often applied to romantic relationships and like dating guard your heart guard your heart and certainly i'm a fan of guarding your heart in that context but really the bible verse is about like Guard your heart from just, like, the stuff you consume that could make you, uh, like, doubt or bitter or you know, cynical, et cetera. That's what it's really mm-hmm. getting at is, is guard – make sure you maintain a heart that is full of faith and it's bold and it's compassionate. Like, that's – yeah, I don't know. Have, have you heard the guard your heart in the context of – Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think it's a lot broader of a principle. Yeah. Yes. There's some interesting – passages like that um i listened to a sermon by eric mason recently oh okay. um, a theology on swearing or something a theo- Ooh, this is fascinating a theology on cursing I have the thoughts. what were his and what are yours um it was it was a sermon i'll probably listen to again at some point 
really Drop well. me a link. I'm going to make a note. Um, but in there, and I wish I had the, I wish I remember the verse, but in there, he talks about a Bible verse that pastors often take out of context. And he's like, you'll often hear it in this context. And he starts like going down the road that it's often, you'll often hear it in. Um, he's like, what it actually means. And he brought some deeper understanding to that. Hmm. I was like, wait a minute. So it was just, it's so. Was it the let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth? Nope. But what is. No, hmm. it was something to do like along the lines of like, like. I, I, I'll, Taking the Lord's name in vain? No, no. No, he went on like kind of a side tangent. Okay. On like the blessing of God and how we can like believe and hope for God's blessing. Um, it was something like related to that. I don't remember specifically. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to the link. Now the, you mentioned it was on like cursing or swearing like mm -hmm. language. Mm -hmm. Like what was, was this like a Sunday morning sermon? Mm -hmm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Like I, I've certainly, <clears throat> I've addressed this. I mean, this is a question that comes up perennially, right? Like I grew up in the church. You grew up in a Christian context. Every teenager is like, wait, is it actually wrong to swear? <laughs> you know? Um, and it's definitely more complicated than like, yes or no. That said, I think with a lot of thought, well, I have some thoughts. I'll share my thoughts, but do you have any like strong thoughts or do you have any like you're kind of like considering still? Like, what are your thoughts before I just dominate? I want this to be a conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's not, well, kind of to your earlier point, I think part of the problem you get into is like the Twitter culture and, and Facebook. You're not going to change anyone's opinion on a tweet, right? right? You can post a controversial opinion on something and, or a strong opinion on something. You're not going to change anyone's mind in that format, right? Either people are going to rally with you or they're going to think you're crazy and they're going to oppose you, like oppose that, that take. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. Totally. It, and that's yeah, kind of the problem. Sound with, bites tend to polarize. Yeah. And I, I think they're unhelpful ultimately. And so even if they're right, I don't think they're useful. Um, so I think, so back to like, I think a, a 45 minute talk on something that kind of really explains something well. Right. It's really hard to summarize. Yeah. Um, in a nutshell. So right? here's an interesting tidbit. So maybe three years ago, I got a text message from a friend and he said, you're, you are right. And they dropped a link to a, a, a study uh, from in a journal that was published in a peer reviewed journal. And the study, it showed that they were M doing MRIs on people who were cussing and then when they weren't cussing. And it showed that, like, when people swore, it actually lit up parts of, like, their lower, like, brainstem. Okay. Which mm. you can, in a very crass way, think of as, as more, like, um, emotional or impulsive or maybe even animalistic compared to your prefrontal cortex, which is a lot more like uh, rational processing, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so they, they did this MRI study and it actually said that when people were cussing, it like lit up their brainstem a little bit more than when they're just using other uh, vocabulary within their language, which, and he was like, you are right. I was like, what is he talking about? So I, I called him back and he's like, dude, like 15 years ago. So yeah. we we're probably like, you know, freshman in college or whatever. We had a, had a conversation about swearing and I do think it's, it's complicated, but one of the things that 
is was pretty clear to me early on was that the they're just words is not true like it's amazing because they are just noises and and in fact it's weird because there are some foreign languages where the same noise as a swear word in english Mm -hmm. means other things Mm -hmm. um and in fact in mandarin there's i'm not gonna say it just for the sake of uh not offending anyone but the the essentially function i don't have a bleep function i've never uh, considered that but a function like essentially their um or ah sounds a lot like the n-word in english okay and it's weird so they'll just start saying like uh repeating repeatedly saying the n-word yeah. You're like, what the... And they're just saying, like, uh, 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 that's what it sounds like in Mandarin. Um, and, and so you have some of these, yeah. you know, it's, they're just noises. Right. They are just noises, but they're not just words. And what I mean by that is to people who are native English speakers, when you say the F word, uh, I think especially the F word if you're an American, or uh, like the S word or the D word or whatever, they're not simply words. There, there's something literally like, and I just observe this from my own experience as like when I am ticked off and I'm mad at somebody or I'm like hurt, mm-hmm. there's something almost, uh, and I detected pretty quickly, not in a good way. There's something almost like in a fleshly way, like relieving about cussing. There's something different when you hit your hand, fam, hand with a thumb when you hit your thumb with a hammer, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh goodness, I, I just, I say, ow, but there's something that's more of a release when you say, mm-hmm. whatever, <laughs> I, and it, that's fascinating to me. And I remember having, having a conversation with right. one of my college uh, peers, this is back in 2005 or whatever I was in college. Yeah. And I was like, there's something about that. And I was like, and it's something about that. That's not particularly healthy. It's really satisfying when I'm ticked off when I'm upset at somebody right. like cussing brings this like uh, a bit of a euphoric is way too over the top but it brings right. a release uh, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about but what's yeah. interesting is in the late like 20 teens so you know a good decade later he saw this study and he was like dude you were right it's like yeah because he was disagreeing with me he was like dude they're just words like whatever right. whether you say our the f word is the same thing um, it's it's like it, I, it, it's there, true it, me, it feels different it's one of those things. Well, so I, I saw, I think it was on Twitter years ago, um, and it stuck with me. Something to the effect of swearing is like something to the effect of like swearing is like smoking. It used to be classy, and now it's like just trashy, was the observation. Interesting. Um, and I think there was, you know, the, and it's something that you can do, it can represent something. You know, you think back to like the old movies or, you know, there was, there was something classy about it, um, not advocating for it, but you know what, like it represented something. Um, and it was like time and place. Um, there was a choosiness. There was like intentionally using it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think swearing is the same thing. It's hard to do it well. And I think people took something that had potential or had a use. Um, and it's just been too widespread. Right. Um, I said swearing is not like novel. I mean, people cuss 
you know, 150 years ago. There's a lot of, well, that's what the word vulgar means. Vulgar just means like common. So yeah. vulgarity is oh, a common. Right. I'm not, sure back in, lowbrow. Yeah. Sailors classless. back in the day. I'm sure it yeah. was, you know, those boats were probably, you know, yep. interesting to listen in on. Um, but you know, in movies and even in, you know, I, I think there was an, there was some idea that it's something that can be used right. in the right way. Um, I think of like, so for our family, we are, one of the things I'm trying to work on are, uh, you know, why questions. Um, they're hard to do well. Um, there's another one. So there are things like that, like anger, right? Anger is useful. Right. You can um, be angry and say not. That's what we often said. <laughs> exactly. Anger right. is hard to do well. Yeah. It's hard to be angry in a helpful way. Mm. It's hard to ask a good why question. I think it's hard to swear in a way that's useful. So um, I want to come back to swearing, but regarding the why question, what you mean mm -hmm. is the why question can very easily become complaining. And it's like, how do you ask why in a way that's actually like genuinely curious and like helpful rather than just be like, but why? Like, what do you mean by it's hard to ask a good why question? Like, that's what it means to me. Questions within my family okay. um, have, have gotten to the point where it's, why do I have to do that? Or, um, or from the parent side of things, why would you ever do that? Right. Or, like what possessed you? Yeah. Like why did you do that? It's like, right. that's not actually helpful. Um, from a parenting point of view, like it's, it, again, it kind of relieves something in the moment of frustration. If I'm frustrated with my kid, I'd be like, why would you do that? Or, um, you know, why would that happen? Um, or why would you think that? Uh, and that's, again, it's not, it's not a helpful question. It's not helpful. Right. Um, and it's based, it can be, it's usually harmful. So it's like, it's, it's um, venting frustration or complaints. Yep. Like, why do I have to do that? Yeah. Why did you do that? Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. speaking yeah. of this, I do yeah. want to get back to the swearing because I think that's an interesting conversation and I have many thoughts, but uh, in terms of, so I'm, I'm unmarried and childless. So we have a slightly different experience there, but I have plenty of experience with people and I have found at times it's been really helpful for me in just appreciating the why would you do that is like personality describing like systems. Um, I think they have some pretty obvious and clear uh, shortcomings or potential pitfalls, but they've been really helpful for me. For example, Myers-Briggs or like the, the classical personality descriptors like phlegmatic, choleric, sanguine, melancholy. Mm -hmm. Uh, more recently in the past five years, I've encountered Enneagram frequently. And one of the things that's been helpful to me with those, I, I don't tend to have a particularly, uh, I'm, I don't have a, a naturally high emotional intelligence. So it's kind of like if somebody thinks differently than me or responds differently, <clears throat> it's like head scratcher. And it still is sometimes, but at least I feel like those systems help me realize like, oh, Part of why someone does something that I think, why would you ever do that, is because they're different than me. Like, I, I, I tend to be slightly introverted and very uh, just kind of like cerebral and I just want to figure things out and understand things. And other people might be motivated by they want to be around people and feel a sense of like belonging. And those are human feelings. I want to be with people and belong too. But that doesn't like tend to drive the way I think and feel. And just realizing like, oh, we have like different strengths and weaknesses and wirings. And that that has been helpful for me to have more grace for people who are like, 
why and uh, i would i would think that would help as a parent like even realizing um you know as a family you guys are going to share a lot you're going to share a lot in terms of values but you even share uh you literally share genetics and you share a common environment but there are still going to be differences. Have you ever used Myers-Briggs or Enneagram? I feel like we talked about this once and I do not recall. And like, how have they been helpful and how have they been like unhelpful in your opinion? Yeah. Like personally. Yeah. Yeah. I've done, yeah. Like strength finders. Um, I know of that, but I've never done it. Yeah. It's a, uh, like 36, there are 36 different traits. Um, and it ranks them. Is disagreeableness one of them? I think agreeableness is one. Okay. I'm um, fairly disagreeable. So, well, so agreeable would might be like 35 or 36 on your list, gotcha. meaning you're not very agreeable. Right. Um, I think that's how that works. Um, so it ranks all of the traits from your like most st strong or most relevant to like the least. Gotcha. Because um, everybody has some form of them. Right. We're all humans. There, there's a lot. We have a lot in common. Yeah. Yeah. But we're also unique. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it, when, and in this case with the strengths finders, with, I think there's 36, um, the unique ordering of all 36 is actually really hard to find someone that same ordering. Right. They, go, they, they tell you the numbers. It's really it's low like, probability and insanely low. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So and that's interesting. Um, Myers-Briggs, I've done that. Um, that's been helpful. Do you remember your type? I-N-F, uh, not J. I'm INTJ. INTP. Okay, INTP. Yeah, yeah, I'm. INFP or INTP? No, INTP. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah. Mm hmm. The perceiving, judging. So the tricky thing with Myers Briggs is I never felt like I, I never invest the time to really thoroughly understand what the letters mean. Right. I don't know so what like, the letters mean. Right. You no, have like the I colloquial. Mean, we know what thinking means and feeling means, but it's not like people who are F don't think and we know judging and perceiving for the J and P but like Myers-Briggs definitely has like a their own dictionary and I've never memorized it well it actually took me a while with Enneagram so Enneagram yeah. has these nine types yep. and That's I thought for, like, for the first three or four years that I was familiar with it I was perpetually like wait what does that type mean again but eventually I just had another enough conversations enough flipping through books listening to podcasts yeah. where I was like okay I have a pretty good sense of all nine types at this point it's easy to get a quick grasp on the nine types, but it's, it takes a lot of time to really understand right. them. I listened to a two-hour talk on, on them, and it just scratched the surface. Right. It was really helpful. I was, so, was going to say, so how has it been helpful, especially in the context of like parenting? And then mm -hmm. what do you see as maybe some of the uh, weaknesses or unhelpful aspects of systems like this? The unhelpful aspects are just the the box you put yourself in. Hundred mm, um, percent. And I think Enneagram actually warns against that. Uh, maybe strength finders. Like this isn't an excuse for how you might conduct yourself. Like you yeah. don't conduct yourself because this thing said something. Um, and I think that was my experience has been people. People can sometimes do that. Um, oh, I. Sorry, I'm. I'm just a feeler or what, you know, whatever your letter is or whatever yeah. the thing is you're strong in. I, I have a friend who's an eight, which is the challenger. And sometimes it's used as an excuse to be a jerk. Mm -hmm. Actually, the last time I took an Enneagram test, I got eight, which was new. Maybe I was just in a bad mood that day. <laughs> as, but I am a bit of a challenge. I'm disagreeable. So I don't mind disagreeing. And 
But uh, I, I think yeah. I'm a type one. What's your type? Do you know? Or Nine. what do you think? Nine. Peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. You're like really good at listening and processing a lot of perspectives. And you want to see. Yeah. That, that, that fits. I can't say I know the nine. I can't give a detailed explanation. But I couldn't either. Okay, so one of the weaknesses is it can somebody could it could they could pigeonhole themselves. They could use that as an excuse. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, use it to rationalize even internally. Like, man, you know, I, oh, I just always do that because right. of this personality trait that I have. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I agree with you. And how has it been helpful, especially in, in parenting? With the personality stuff. Yeah. Um. So. Parent, I would say it's more helpful in marriage. Okay. Um, it's been good to know why I will have certain responses or why I tend to respond certain ways, um, especially toward certain things, certain, toward certain personalities. Um, like if my wife responds a certain way, that might trigger in me a default response. And it's like, well, why is that? It could be, you know, it could be nurture. Like some of it could be the upbringing. It could be like my past. It could be personality. Like there's a mix in there. And so it's sure. It's really helpful in that regard Yep. to understand why certain things play out the way they do. Um, and ultimately that's there to help you improve on that. Not to just like see, see it for what it is, right? but understand, okay. Oh, this is how we connect well, or this is something I need to process rather than just, yeah, I, I yeah. get it. Or when I say, when I talk this way, or when I say this, things generally don't go well. Oh, well, this personality type generally is harder for them to hear right. X, Y, Z. Um, or they, you know, they better, they receive things better when it's said this way or so yep. it's been helpful that with my kids. Um, yeah, it hasn't, I mean, it's, I'm still figuring out their personality types. Right. Um, so I don't know how. I think Enneagram says you have to wait until they recommend like trying not to number your kids right. for a while. And so, you're right. And I'm not even sure I would. I don't try to number most people, even myself. I'm not positive. I think I'm a one, but I could also be a three or a five or an eight. <laughs> well, it's actually really hard to know. Right. And, uh, but I think for me, it's just like so helpful. The, the, the big takeaway, and fortunately you can get this takeaway in like 15 minutes. If you're unfamiliar with these systems is just, People have different ways they tend to react and respond and uh, emotions that connect with them or emotions that like can repulse them or make them afraid, yeah. uh, it, which is, it's just, again, helpful because I think the default is to think everybody thinks like you. And so when somebody does something, they respond in a way you would never respond. You're just like, what in the world? Like, what's yeah. wrong with you? Oh, you're different than me. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that they're right or wrong. It's just different. Yes, <clears throat> exactly. One of the downsides that I've seen are people so in like the whole dating scene yeah right oh my personality is compatible with this personality type or generally these two numbers blend well together and there's some truth there like certain enneagram numbers might right you want to find your uh your complementary yeah whatever. yeah um and people can take that to an extreme and <clears throat> use use that to like vet whether someone could be a good partner. Right. Uh, and I don't... It sounds way too mechanistic. Yeah. <laughs> Although at the same time, who knows? Maybe, uh, I don't even know what, what are, match.com, is that still a thing? Yeah. Do they try to do stuff like that? It might actually right. statistically improve relationships. I don't know. 
it, it, it could, but I think on a secular level, it might. But that's not really how relationships were designed. <laughs> it sounds like a really like uh, formulaic and like yeah. whack way to approach things. So it can help. I think they're good to help understand the other person, but to determine whether or not you can actually partner with them. Right. Yeah. Well, because also like I know situations where you see a couple and they're so different and it works really well and other situations where a couple and they're like both almost like the same and it works really well. But I also know situations where they're so different and you're like, that does not work. And situations where they're almost the same and that does not work. And so there's clearly more to it than simply finding like a compliment. It could be statistically on the whole certain wirings fit better with other certain wirings. But it feels like the kind of thing that might have some statistical relevance when you're looking at populations. But the idea that it's really going to be particularly helpful for any specific couple is it's just putting your faith in human systems and formulae rather than a faith in Jesus and submitting to him and like, hey, is this is this like a God fit for us and wise counsel people who know you? Like there's just like way better factors to consider than some like slight statistical detail when looking at huge populations. And you can use it to remove responsibility. Mm. And oh, right, right. You're not working out, you're like, well, statistically we're slightly more likely to get divorced. So Yeah, <laughs> if I that. if I marry this personality type, my life will be easier or right. we'll get along better. And it's like relationships take work. Right. And, and I think we're always looking for things to offload. So I never read, read I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Have you read that book? No. Okay. And yeah, there's like the recent fallout. I was going to say, that. I never read it, but for, for years, it's kind of been like low key in conversation regarding relationships, especially in the past few years. I've actually never heard it talked about as much as I have the past few years in like an anti-purity culture type thing. I've never read the book. Maybe there's something in the book that's horrible. On the whole, I think I'm familiar with the general gist of the book. I've read other books by Joshua Harris. I've I've met his dad and heard him speak. And I, I was I was part of a church within that network of churches mm-hmm. when I was in Virginia for a couple of years. And like the, the the basic notion was don't treat marriage like you're married to the person, or don't treat dating like you're married to the person, and just like serial date, but like be emotionally and physically entangled with people like they're your spouse, then you're breaking up. It's like, no, no, like dating's dating and marriage is marriage. And so like the basic gist is seems simple and obvious and healthy. He may be said some like crazy things. I don't know. Most of the criticism of the book I saw I've seen don't actually have any like, you know, smoking gun. Like he said, blah, blah, blah. Uh, What it is, is it's more people are saying like, I was told that if I, you know, waited until marriage to have sex. I'd have a perfect marriage. I'm like, well, show me the quotation of Harris saying that. Cause I doubt right. he said that cause no sane person would say that. But I think I can readily imagine hundreds of thousands of people putting their hope in that in like, uh, without really vocalizing it clearly being like, Oh, if I do ABC, then my marriage will be easy. If I find a type three, cause I'm a type, whatever my marriage will be easy. I think we're like always looking for these, like, shortcuts and 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 formulae to like put our hope in and then those things always let us down and we just yeah yeah and i don't i haven't read the book either um something and this could be this could be in the book i don't know but 
something I've heard related to the book are people waiting for the one. Oh yeah. Um, I don't know if the book, how the book talks about that, but that idea, that's a horrible idea. Um, it's right. Like that's just not how life is meant to be lived. Um, and I could be, I could be off, but I've heard that the book encouraged waiting for the one. Gotcha. Um, and if so, well, I would disagree I could, with it then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I could see that being a problem. Right. It's, it's very possible. possible. I will yeah. say I've never seen the line that said that, and I feel yeah. like it would be everywhere if it's, he actually said that. I do right. wonder and if there people... could be an overall tone. And again, I don't right. know if it's in the book, or I don't know if that's the, if right. that's like a a worldview, or if that's like a viewpoint that he was advocating. Um, yeah. But you can convey something. Yeah. I also, actually I also know people IRL, like in real life, just like friends who didn't read that book, who after two or three rough dating relationships that didn't work out well, they, you know, it was complicated, a little bit messy, whatever. They're like, man, the next person I date, I want to be the person I marry. And I get the impulse, but it's not actually a healthy way to like date. Cause what it does is it, it basically, it makes you do this weird, like pre-dating dating. I'm like, just call it dating or yeah. courtship or whatever that, whatever you want to call it. But there needs to be a season where you're like, hey, this person seems like maybe somebody I'd want to marry. Let me purposefully pray about this, connect with them in that context, get wise counsel. And whether you call that dating or courting or who knows what, the point is, if you try to figure out whether you should get married before you do that, you're not going to be in a healthy context to figure out whether you should get married. So, so what happens is either you decide you're going to marry somebody with very little information or you actually date the person without saying you're dating them where you're like, we're just uh, in an intentional friendship. I'm like, okay, well, does that mean like you're dating or courting or who knows what? Or like, just be honest. Um, Cause like the semantic thing, I don't find helpful. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Anywho, that was a uh, all of this back to so swearing. Um, mm-hmm. So definitely, like swear words have this. There really is something that that viscerally, and it's demonstrated with MRIs. Uh-huh. There's a difference between saying fork and the F word. Uh, you could use fork as a minced orth, like that's fork and dumb or whatever. Like, but like it. There's a visceral difference, um, and which is interesting. But but also to what you were noting a moment ago, I do think there are times. Now, as a whole, to to be clear, I I don't swear for a few reasons. Maybe we'll get to them. I can't think of them off the top of my head. But one of the I will say I've had friends swear in a way where I'm like I think that was actually like edifying and fine. Right. Uh, meaning like say say I've like. Uh, um, I was accepted into law school a year ago and I'm, I'm in school now. Podcast knows that, you know, that, uh, maybe I don't actually remember if this happened, but I have things like this in life. I'll tell a friend and they're like, Oh dude, that's effing great. Um, or, Oh, that's, you, you know, you know, no, I'm talking about you have friends who, who talk like this, I'm sure. And uh, often when they swear, I think it's unhealthy and it's like just degrading and low, but sometimes they swear. I'm just like, Dude, they're just like rejoicing with me and encouraging me. And the swear word in that context, it actually was fine, maybe even helpful. Because like, now I'm not encouraging swearing, but there is something like, uh, so Radiohead had 
a track released in the early 90s called Creep. I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. Do you know that song? <laughs> what the am I doing here? I don't belong here. Oh, dude, it's so good. You Creep. You got to listen to that later. They do swear in the song. FYI. Full disclosure. But the, one of the – they did a radio cut. People don't do radio cuts anymore, I don't think. But back in the day, in the 90s, people would offer a card. they do. Do they? But, but like, do they change the lyrics? Oh, I see what you're saying. So, like, back in the day, they would – now they just bleep sometimes. But back in the day, they would actually do a cut where they would change up phrasings or at least put in, like, a minced oath. Mm-hmm. So instead of a swear word, they'd say, like, so actually it some, stinks or something like that. Some country songs – some country artists have started doing that. Okay. Um, there's, like, this – I don't know how new a genre it is, but there's, like, this new – for me, there's this country genre of music where – it's like kind of more hip hop, rough around the edges. There's swearing. Okay. Um, there's some artists where you know every track is explicit, um, but a very country feel to it. Okay. Like, Wait a minute. Um, but they will often, they will sometimes re-record that track for radio. Right. We'll have a different vocal. And take. so you hear it yeah. on the radio. It's like a country song. Like that's cool. But then if you look at the original. Um, like, Whoa. So that was normal in the 90s. For anything you thought was going to get radio play that was explicit, they would not just bleep, but they would actually have. So in the radio had. So uh, at one point they say, you're so effing special. And in the radio version, they say, you're so very special. And I remember listening to the two and it was, I'm not sure it was a good thing. Like the, the song is kind of it's kind of weird. They're not saved. It's a little bit dark and mm. self uh, loathing almost, and self like deprecating in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. So I'm not in any way saying like you should have theology formed by creep, but it's a really interesting piece of art. I like art, and music is art, and this song is an interesting piece of art. And and I listened to the radio edit, and I was like, wow, this is not. This art, this version of this art lacks something. There was something about saying so effing special. And obviously I didn't say effing. (laughs) Um, That was like powerful. It it conveyed. It it was using Mm -hmm. words well to be like, wow, you're you're amazing and I'm nothing. Mm -hmm. And saying you're so very special didn't have that same contrast. It was like the, the colors were bland if you if you likened it to a painting, whereas the original had very high, powerful contrast. The radio edit was bland. Yeah. And I, I'm not advocating people speak the way people didn't creep, but I am thinking if somebody's like, you get into college and one friend says, that's great. And the other friend says, that's effing amazing. It, it's almost like, more encouraging. I'm, again, I'm not saying do it. There's a reason for a few reasons I don't swear ever. Don't swear by myself. Don't swear with any of my friends. Don't swear in public. It's just one of the reasons is simpler. You don't have to try to figure out those moments and like edit yourself. I do a lot of public speaking. I'm a pastor. And the last thing I'm interested in is act, like the way I talk in front of people is the way I talk always. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, that's just really. Yeah, that that's not somewhere I don't want to go. But secondly, I think generally 
Swearing, in my experience, has been a negative context. It's usually complaining. It's usually expressing frustration and angst in an unhealthy way. Doing anger well is hard, right? So I feel like almost always it's a a, a visceral expression of something that's not exactly faith-filled and Jesus-centered in us. Jesus, we're walking around today. I wouldn't be surprised if he cussed a couple of times on purpose. But on the whole, I think he would basically never swear. And... I'll take the basically never swear posture. Um, yeah. The, the, and and like, so that's kind of like, so I don't accidentally use it in a bad way, but also because it almost never is a good way anyways. But I, at the same time, I think it would be overly simplistic and maybe Christians do this sometimes to be like swearing is always wrong. Like, I'm not sure that's true. I think there could be a positive time, but I'm never going to swear. I don't know. What's your take? Right. I think it's, you know, you take the same, same approach with anger. Um, now anger shows itself in many different forms. So you can't say I, I won't ever get angry because right. that's just not true. Um, you can really minimize unhealthy expressions of anger. Um, but with swearing, um, it, when it, again, I think it's the context. Yep. If you, if it is a reaction, I think that's unhelpful. Right. Um, it can be done well. It's hard to do well. Um, you think of it like salt or sugar, right? Um, you can use salt to make up for shortcomings that were otherwise there. And people, yeah. I think, use swearing as like a shortcut to make up for other shortcomings, um, either in the vocabulary or they are lazy and don't want to find a better way to articulate something. Right. Um, and... You know, and in food, I think, you know, sparingly using something is good as long as the other stuff there is really good, right? If you have cheap food that doesn't have much flavor, right? you want a ton of salt to make it taste good. Um, so, there's overlap. Mm. So, yeah. No, I totally agree. Uh, so, a third reason... I tend to just say, I'm just not going to swear. So the first one is, generally speaking, I think swearing is wrong, generally. When people, most usages of swear words is not like God honoring. That some might be, but most aren't. Secondly, I want, I want to be really careful w- with my vocabulary because I'm not interested in accidentally swearing in the wrong context especially because of how much I communicate and communicate publicly, that could be really confusing or offensive to people. And then the third one is related. I, although I disagree with them, I know plenty of people who very sincerely and genuinely would say there's never a good time to swear. I would disagree with them and tell them that to their face. In fact, they can listen to this podcast if they want. Um, however, I think they are genuine, sincere And the occasional times where it might add something special Mm -hmm. in my, in my world. And I do think this depends on your, your context and your world, but in my world, me using it then would just be hurtful enough, like confusing to them in a way that unless I really felt like that was worth it, Mm -hmm. I'm better off just not swearing. I don't know if that makes sense. Is Um, it fair to say swearing is like drinking? Like you can choose to just not do it. Right. 100%. And great. Yep. To imply it's bad for everyone. And on the flip side, excessive drinking. Right. Right. Problematic. 
Well, I think it's very similar in in that like your context matters. Um, and and for example, I know one person. I might know more, but I know of one person that I know, and I know a few thousand people. I know of one person that I know personally who thinks that alcohol is consuming alcohol is always wrong for a Christian. Um, I think I don't just think I'm quite persuaded that they are wrong. And everybody else that I've actually talked to in a meaningful way in this conversation believes that they are wrong. However, if my world had a lot of people like that in it, I may well abstain from alcohol entirely simply because I'm like, it's not like there's a huge win in having alcohol. I think it can be fine and helpful at times, but there's not like, it's not like it's like this, like, oh, wow, this is really helpful. Like people are getting saved because I have alcohol. Yeah. Once in a you're while. not ultimately missing out. And if it's lot. like, if I'm in a world that's full of believers who would be like really confused and hurt by me doing that, I'd be like, I'll just, ins-. you know, it's, it's like Paul, I, I think at one point in first Corinthians eight or nine, when he's talking about meat offered to idols, he's like, I'll, depending on the context, maybe I'd never have meat again. I'll go vegetarian if that helps. Like, and I think there's a place for that. I, that's not my world with alcohol. I think it might be my world at the moment with swearing. Like, I think there are a number of people in my life who'd be like, there's never an appropriate time to swear. And I would disagree with them, but also I don't see it as adding that much of a win. Here's a parallel that maybe I'll explore briefly because I think it, it's, it's similar to this, but I do... I'm actually still like navigating like what's best and what's healthy. And, and the truth is sometimes I make mistakes. I'm not going to hold myself up as a perfect example. I, oh, oh, one last comment on swearing. I will say swear words. And if we were having this conversation right now, not on the record mm-hmm. being recorded, I would probably in like a, 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 a an academic style way, I wouldn't be saying like F in, I would actually just say the F word. Just because, like, I'm like, you know what it is. I'm like, when you say, it like feels different, and like, mm-hmm. like, I, like, I, I would, I feel like that's like, I don't know, uh, for polite reasons, it's the same reason you might not say, you know, anatomical terms like loudly and commonly. But I'm also, I feel free to use them in a conversation when you're talking about you know, male and female reproductive anatomy. I'm just going to use the words, but like, you know, right now there's mm-hmm. no need to say it. Like, so, so it's more like yeah. a polite thing, but I would, Discretion. I would, I would say the swear words. I would just say them, but in a context of like, I'm not swearing, I'm talking about swear words, but okay. So are you familiar with the term minced oath? Mm-hmm. Okay. So oftentimes, especially when you're in like, you're in a Christian context where likely you're encouraged not to swear. And I think for good reason, um, I really do think that most instances of swearing that I've encountered, which are many, 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 because I have friends that swear like every sentence, most instances of swearing are at best uh, like unedifying and mildly like negative or angsty, often like straight up like really, ugh. Um, but sometimes maybe helpful or even like encouraging, like that's effing awesome. So on the whole, I'm I'm happy for these, but they often breed tons of creative minced oaths. Uh, Everything from, you know, darn it to uh, sucks to whatever, like, you know, various minced oaths. And I've purposed over the years to minimize my usage of minced oaths, but I have at times, and I'm not even sure if this is the best path. 
I'm curious to get your thoughts. But sometimes I actually use them and not in just like a talking about them way like right now, but I'll actually use them because I feel like somewhat parallel to the way a, a swear word grabs a hold of something. Like say somebody like, they're like, oh, dude. And they're just like really, you can tell they're, they're really like down, but in like a slightly like almost like shocked, just overwhelmed way. And they're like, you know, my car, I just got a, the mechanic just called needs like $1,200 of repairs. I just put a bunch of month into it, money last month. In addition, you like my, I don't know, great aunt fell and broke her hip and I feel like I need to go travel. And it's just like, man, like, you know, three things hit this person at once. And if the person's like somebody my age that I'm fairly familiar with, I could be like, that's really hard. I'm so sorry, brother. Um, but I might even say like, wow, that, that's that just sucks like i don't know like do you know what i mean and 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 genuinely and sincerely i think it it's really hard and it's just it hurts and it's heavy and sometimes i might use like crappy or sucks purposefully not to not to be offensive but to actually like say like i i get it this is hard um i have wondered if that's actually helpful Sometimes I'll, I'll use mince oaths unintentionally and accidentally, and that's shame on me for not being more intentional and specific with my language. But sometimes I actually use them intentionally. What do you think about that? Is that being too fast and loose? Is that helpful? Like, because do you see the parallel with like yeah. maybe maybe for some people they'd be like, well, I'd swear right then. I'm like, I'm not comfortable. I'm, I've pretty much decided at least for the foreseeable future, just never swearing, and I've only sworn once or twice in my life that I only remember one time, but maybe there's another, uh, but I have purposefully used myths oaths even in the past year. Mm. What do you think? Well, full disclosure, I don't know the technical definition. It, of- it's, it's any like curse replacement. So it could be like, gosh, darn it. Instead of holy cow, holy cow sucks. Fricking whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and there are various levels, right? Like you can go really chill and just be like yeah stinks maybe is stinks an exclamation or is it a minced oath all the way to you know something that sounds very much like a swear word mm-hmm. right so i think that you know why why find a substitute why not just say what you otherwise would say if not for the constraints you put on yourself valid Oh, you're saying like maybe just swear. Right. Why try to find a replacement? Um, is it like trying to find replacements for, say, sex outside of marriage? Mm. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, where does it leave you? So I get what you're saying, but I wonder if this, I wonder if it's more like finding the right shade of shade of the of a color paint rather than like, I don't know, like, I mean, it's language. You could also say, you could say like, that's difficult. Mm -hmm. That's hard. That's overwhelming. Yes. That's because that's that's, difficult. That stinks. That's crappy. That's S wordy. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like you can go or like that effing blows. I don't know. Like, like there's, there's degrees. And I'm like, these almost in my, in my opinion, I think generally these get into usually on the extreme end, they start getting into angsty 
complainy, fleshly land. There might be a way to use them well, but it's really hard, really confusing. Maybe you're using it well, but the person you're with, it's like a drink and they're getting drunk and you're just having a wine glass of wine. It's just, and I'm like, there might be a way to like convey some sort of powerful sense of like, I get it. That's more than like, oh, that's hard. You know what I mean? And so use tone of voice, but you also use the verbiage. But also, uh, I don't think it would necessarily be sinful to swear in that context. But for me, I've just decided that's almost always going to be unhelpful, maybe often sinful, usually unhelpful, potentially confusing, or even maybe helpful to this person. But somebody else, they're like, oh, yeah, Jamie was there. And he said, you know, this this effing stinks. And somebody else is like, he swore. And it's like confusing and distracting them. I and mean, it's like, it, it's just not helpful to the ministry. That's why I might not swear. But I also am like, I want to find verbiage, tone, timing to convey I care. Right. But, same, but you would just go all the way, maybe. Well, You'd use some of the most strongest verbiage. Well, you can say that's difficult. That's not a substitute for anything. Right? It's a substitute for that stinks. Not, not. I mean, it's just a different word. It's, it's a, different a different shade word. of the. You're not, by saying that's difficult, you're not trying to substitute. Right. When you say that freaking something, like you're trying to substitute. Yeah, right? ish. Although you might be like saying. Quite literally, you're substituting a word. Right, but you could also say like that stinking whatever. And mm-hmm. so there's a ver- a number of substitutes. It's just they're synonyms, but they're synonyms that have different visceral connotation. I don't know. Yeah, so I, we might I, be I like getting a bat like as, as nitpicky on languages. As I don't know why you would seek out a substitute. <clears throat> gotcha. Just find an entirely different phrase. Mm, okay. Or use what you're trying to convey. I got. When you. you're trying to convey something, but not. You know, you like the, the, the pop But the thing you're conveying reference. is not a word. The thing you're conveying is a sentiment. And the question is, I wonder if often <clears throat> swearing actually starts to fail to convey the sentiment because it starts getting fixated on the word. Right. Whereas, right. like, maybe some, some replacement helps you stay focused on the sentiment. Like, I don't think when I say in, in some sort of context, like, wow, that is – that's just crappy. Like, I don't know. I don't think people all of a sudden start thinking about the word I said. Mm-hmm. They feel the sentiment. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. if I said that's S wordy, they'd be like, well, what? Like all of a sudden they're thinking about the S word. <laughs> I'm like, that's not the point. The point isn't the word. The point is yeah. the, the sentiment. Well, and in that, in that case, I don't, it, you know, it doesn't sound like you're trying to replace the S word. I'm sure you're trying to choose the right word. Yeah. You're trying to accurately represent something. <clears throat> you're yes. trying to convey something. And you're not necessarily trying to find a substitute. Correct. I think that would be a fair distinction. When you try to find a substitute, I just wonder why substitute? If you're looking to convey something, find the most appropriate way to convey it. Right. And if that is swearing for you, then use that. Don't try to say it without saying it. That makes sense. If you want to say something without saying something, maybe find a different way to say right. that. Right. Should you say it? And if you should, say it. But yeah, I get you. So I, I totally, I get what you're saying. And I, I, I think, and I think we're on the same page now. Like what I'm actually trying to say might actually be best said with what you could call a substitute, but it's the same way you might substitute cup and glass. Like there are substitutes, mm-hmm. but also you might choose one because it like has a different impact in a certain statements i don't know i'm trying to think of glass connotes uh fancier more intentioned mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. raise a glass 
Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah whatever. Yeah. Exactly. It's Less language. casual. Uh, so, like, I love language. Is this the kind of thing you ever have conversations about? Or just like right now, like, I don't know, like, what's your take on language? Do you, do you ever like obsess with like wording? Sometimes when I'm writing, I will literally write a sentence like four or five times in a row. I'll use a text editor for like computer programming almost and just have like a sentence and like four or five versions and I'll tweak and I'll like make slightly different, I'll, I'll, I'll swap in. It's not like I'm using a thesaurus. I'm just using Jamie, but like, I'm like, how do I say this just right? Do I put this phrase here? Do you, have you ever done that? Not in writing, okay. but I do try to be intentional. So one of the, mm, in my family, one of the goals is to be very aware of the words that we use, just generally speaking. Um, but something I've, I've tried to convey to my kids, and I don't remember the exact numbers. You can fact check this, but there's you know, the words you say, the tone that you say them in, and your body language. So out of those three, when we communicate, we use those three different ways to communicate. Words are actually the smallest percentage of what's actually communicated. Yeah. By a large, a large um, portion. I think it was like 15% is words, like 40% is tone of voice, and the remainder is body language. Um, I believe it. And it was something crazy like that. I was like, wow. So words matter, um, but it's a very small part of the overall how you communicate. Right. Um, and so, but that is something that I've, I realized, wow, like my kids need a good dose of, like, they need to grow in that. Um, words matter very much. Uh, they do. So it seems to me, like, as long as we're being genuine, genuine and like, like if, if your heart's in the right place, often body language and tone flow fairly naturally. Um, and, and like the, at the cerebral level, mostly what you're thinking about is the word choice. But I have noticed somebody I've just become friends with in the past few months, they almost never will look me in the eyes. Like we're, we're like, we have good conversations. I'm like, I don't know if it's a, like a, a, a developmental like tick, if they just... Or if there's some sort of like I'm not sure what it is honestly like we're not like super close friends but we're friendly and but it's it's like this really weird thing where like I usually just don't think about that kind of stuff. There, what's what's interesting about body language, and I think largely tone, is especially if you're a native speaker, it just kind of flows. And even like eye contact is that what's normal is to largely have eye contact, but it's like blink and look away periodically. It's also weird when somebody's just like staring at you, <laughs> like they're like drilling like into your head. <laughs> um, and so there's like this normal rhythm where we know to like look, but then like kind of blink and look away. <laughs> it's such a like I don't usually think about it, but I do sometimes. And I'm like, that's so weird that we do this like game. But like, I uh, mostly I don't notice. I can just tell if somebody's like actually cares about connecting, et cetera. And that comes through, but that does come through so much in body language and tone. And you can also very quickly, yeah, you kind of like, it's like you, you get the person's like heart and attitude, which is huge. Cause I don't care what you're saying. If I can tell like you're like just annoyed or disinterested or whatever, uh, the words are almost like meaningless, but assuming that the, the heart and attitude are, are healthy and engaged, like that's the, the focus on words, but communication is, 
Communication is tricky, and some people are just much more naturally gifted. I I think my interpersonal skills are mostly learned, which makes me feel like uh, talking on the phone is very uncomfortable to me. I shouldn't say very uncomfortable. I've grown. It used to be very uncomfortable to me. Something that helped me a lot, earbuds. I almost never talk on the phone unless I have two earbuds in, and it just helps me feel so much more engaged and present. Uh, But still what happens, I just was on a phone call a week and a half ago, and perpetually, like, we got the timing off, so we both, like, come in at the same time. And if you're just, like, chatting with, like, a, you know, one of your bros it's like who cares but it was like somebody i was trying to like have a significant conversation with and we're not like super like we're not like intimate friends so it was like it just felt it felt clunky and then i'm like do i sound now like rushed or and like you start then like in the middle of the conversation analyzing and you're just like no i don't know what do you think about phone calls do you enjoy talking on the phone you will you when you remove body language right it's like the video, you know, when you try to do, communicate over video call, you know, you're removing something and it just makes everything more difficult. 100%. Phone calls naturally, like any, you know, written text messages, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to tell what's the, the tone behind something. That someone's I tend writing to in. have lots of emoji. And I think that helps in the modern day, but back in the day, when it, it looks was silly, all, but it really helps. Yeah, it actually does. And I think that's why they become popular because it's just hard to communicate something with just words. Yeah. Um, and your question, though. Um, oh, I was asking the phone. Like, because oh, okay. so growing up, I remember some of my friends, they would like love calling people and talking on the phone. And it just, yeah. it was never interesting to me. It didn't really make sense. I didn't even have a cell phone until I was a few years into college. And I'm not that old. I'm 86. So a lot of my friends were getting high cell phones like at the end of my high school year. So in the early yeah. aughts. And I think I got a phone when I was like 21, 22. Yeah. So I was like super behind. I'm going to guess you were a little ahead of me. Uh, so I got a phone well, in maybe 2006 or 2007. Okay. When did you get a cell phone? Um, 2001 or 2002. Okay, yeah. Which is when a lot of people our age. Uh-huh. Are you 86? 84. Okay. Um, and yeah, so I, you know, it's not something that I would generally do, but for like, say, my old girlfriend. Right. We were talking on the phone for hours. Sure. And it was, there wasn't anything weird. It's like we both wanted to do that. Right. When and, you're comfortable with the person, like who cares if you like jump in at the same time or yeah. like whatever. Yeah. But when you're, when it's a, when the phone calls for a reason, it's much more difficult. And it's somebody you're not like intimate with. Yeah. Yes. And, and by I, that, I just mean like close friends. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's much more challenging. So it generally doesn't happen. Yep. Uh, have you found having earbuds has made talking the phone easier for you or have you not even thought about that? It's made it way easier for me. It's um, actually the thing that's made it easier for me is when I, for me, it's not so much the sound, but it's what I can do while on the phone Mm, and the other distractions make it like some people can multitask, you know, they can have the phone and they can like be doing something. Yeah. The phone of the crick of the neck way back in the day. That's awesome, bro. (laughs) Exactly. And then you would be doing other things and you can have a conversation and do stuff. I can't do that. Um, I quickly lose, quickly lose track of the conversation. Right. You're kind of like focused on something. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's just setting aside whatever I'm doing. Um, driving maybe one exception. I can try to have a conversation. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, uh, something that you mentioned briefly in passing earlier when we were talking about podcasts was you said, like, 
ordered man or order of man order of man but yeah. i want to talk a little bit more and maybe we'll conclude with that it's just a conversation about uh, manhood masculinity just kind of god's purpose for us as men i know this is something you've thought about a bunch and it's like really helped you personally helped you with marriage and family i don't know, like what what are some of your thoughts that we live in an age with a broken view of gender and really a pretty unhealthy category of men as the whole in the United States today. So like, what are, what are some of your thoughts? What's some of you, what you've been thinking about lately? Um, I think the problem originated from Adam. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but true. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it did ultimately yeah. start there. No, I think, I think the, the black eye that men have, it's our own doing. Mm. Um, and we've, one of the more helpful things that I, I try to carry with me. Um, a guy should not be the primary beneficiary of his decisions. Mm. Um, the choices that men make, the things that we do should primarily benefit others. Um, and I think if that were walked out culturally, you know, if that were walked out, um, if men in general lived their lives that way, um, I don't think we'd be nearly as much in the mess that we're in. Um, so that's kind of the fundamental issue, I think, is that men are just generally selfish. I mean, we're all selfish, right. but men have this you, this more powerful ability to act selfishly. Um, and we can just move forward with something selfishly at the expense of those around us. Um, and I think that's, a large part of the problem that we're in. Uh, so we just have a bunch of men in culture right. um, making selfish decisions. Um, yeah, when I think yeah. about kind of like the masculine stereotypes over the past century, I think a lot about, I think, I think work a lot. I would say on the whole, men have tended to struggle more with workaholism than like but then get home and you're watching sports and drinking beer or whatever toys investing a lot of extra just in there's nothing wrong with per se but it's really easy to get self-focused on you know boating and snowmobiles and like just like you kind of like hey i worked 50 hours this week i'm gonna go play with the boys Um, well and that plays into so the other big challenge in men face is passivity hmm. and that can take the form of abdication or it can take the form of dominance. Mm. Um, so passivity kind of has two extremes. Yep. But to your point about working, men often dedicate their time to their job uh, because they're good at it. They're competent. And we like to be competent and we like to do things. We like to move into areas that we know. Right. Um, and so men will work a lot at the expense of their home life. Right. Or, they're using it as a, an out, an escape from home. Yeah. yeah. And so they're being passive toward their home environment. Um, but, you know, for seemingly good reasons, like they're working long hours or, you know, their business is excelling. And I do think it yeah. may be even in their minds, in our minds, I should say, can uh, seemingly legitimate, uh, hey, I worked 60 hours this week. I deserve to go do my thing this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, there's, there's nothing per se wrong with going and hanging out with some friends for the weekend, but I think it can become this cycle of like, 
I worked hard so I can ditch my family and I'm justified in it. Right. And that comes back to the selfish motivations. I, I need to relax. I need to break. I need me, yep. you know, I need this. And it's very self-focused. Um, and I think that's very problematic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then hobbies too, like yep. same thing. Um, we can pour our energy into hobbies and they're a lot of fun. They can create, you know, there's a lot of creative stuff that comes out of that. Um, but it can be at the expense of, it's just a form of, it can be a form of passivity towards something else. Mm. Right. Yeah. Where, where your energy is, there's, it's the um, opportunity cost. Right. Every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to other things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we're saying yes to plenty, but we're saying no to all the important things that we actually ought to be that we would, if we said yes to, we'd be saying yes for other people, but we're saying yes to this for ourselves. Now, now, interestingly, I'm sure there still is plenty of workaholism within a younger generation, but it, in my, you know, anecdotal experience, it seems like people our age and younger have maybe more so than men going, you know, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, I think men struggled with a lot of this sin, but it often looked like workaholism and then like, you know, sports and booze. I, I don't know. Like that's somewhat stereotypical, but I actually, I have extended family members that they worked hard at work mm -hmm. and then they came home and drank beer and watched sports. That was like their life. And then their wife like managed their family and et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but people our age and maybe younger, it's a little bit, I feel like laziness is almost more acceptable. And like, I don't know if I'm necessarily, I, I'm, I'm interacting with guys not infrequently and it's like a full-time job of 40 hours a week, like overwhelms them. And like, it's literally a job that they don't even bring home. I'm like, bro, I know people who work 50 or 60 hours and they bring home pressure. You have like a job where you clock in for 40 hours a week and now you can't do anything else because it's like too overwhelming. So then you're just like watching Netflix and playing video games for another 40 hours a week. Like, and that's not just a one-off. I know plenty of people where 40 hours a week at Walmart is like maxes them out. Um, I... Like, other than, like, a kick in the pants, like, what do you feel like is the underlying – I mean, obviously, it's, it's selfishness and sin, but, like, how do we – as messed up as things were 40 years ago, at least overall, we lived in a world where men were working hard and providing <laughs> for their families, but now it's – I don't know. Yeah. I, well, right. You can either, you, they were working too much back then. They could have dialed it back. Now we're not working enough. We need to – Not um, not uncommonly, I'm seeing that. And it, I don't know if you've right. ever interacted with somebody, like – they work a full-time job. It's literally like 38 hours and it's the kind of job you don't take home. You know what I mean by that, right? Like they're not like getting texts at home, right, and right. like carrying, they're not like managers yep. and they're like maxed out. I'm like, what's wrong here? Right. It's a, well, you know, early in marriage, um, for, we had kids pretty quick, but early on, um, you know, the things that would bug me, things that bothered me, um, it was like, we didn't have there were no big issues in our, in our marriage. Uh, and so there were little things in the absence of big problems, little problems become magnified. Right. 100%. And once kids came along <laughs> and we had like bigger stuff to deal with, um, not the kids are a problem. Um, well, you're just, there, there was challenges. There were focuses there were and all of a sudden focuses, there's small things. You're like, Whatever. all of a sudden the small things, it was like, I actually don't even care about that. Wow. Like that's like, it, it's a, like for me to put energy toward that, toward figuring that out. It's like, no. It makes sense. You're right. You know, and yeah. I think there's some of that at play. Um, like life is just too easy often. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, and because I would say there's a lack of vision. Um, I think men are to have a vision for their life, mm. like an actual written vision um, that you can read and it like well articulates who you are, like what you're about, what you want your life to be, like what you're working toward. Um, and if you have that, um, it, hopefully it's self-motivating um, and you can kind of have something, have a vision of something you want to work toward. And that would motivate you. But if you don't have something working toward, then just enough to get by. If, if you're not planning for the future, if you're not, you know, I need to save up a lot of money because there's this nice house on the corner that I want to raise a family there. Or, you know, there's this sick motorcycle that I want to ride someday. Um, and that's going to cost a lot of money. And, right. you know, there's if, if there's something to planning toward the future, uh, I think that could motivate people. But I don't think we, I think there's like a lack of that. Okay. So like a, a lack of vision being really lack of significant in this conversation. And mm -hmm. like, have you studied feminism at all? History of feminism, current talk? Not specifically. I read a, um, this book I read through recently and I may mention this. One of the chapters was the church of feminine. I don't know if we've talked about uh, this, but feminism categorically, I haven't like studied okay. it or read in depth about it. I mean, it's, it's a vast movement. Uh, sometimes people, when they're talking about it, there's like first wave, second wave, third wave. And, and even within those, I mean, these are big movements without like a clear figurehead. So there's, there's disagreement within the movement, right? Mm -hmm. there, and even today, I would say a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but a number of fairly prominent feminists are being rejected by the, the current, like, uh, zeitgeist of, of just woke, you know, critical theory driven stuff, which feminism was part of, but it's moved beyond. And so in the embrace of certain transgender, the way that there are some approach the transgender conversation, uh, it actually like really undoes a lot of feminist work. And so sometimes some feminists like that, the lady who wrote, uh, what's the, the wizard thing with like spells and stuff. Harry Potter, mm. J.K. Rowling, mm -hmm. Rowling, Rowling. I don't remember her name. I've never read the book. Have you read Harry Potter? Um, nope. Mm. Part of the first book. I have friends who've like reread the series multiple times, <laughs> but I've never read it. Uh, I was too old, I think. So I guess you were kind of a little old too. But she she's just made like simple, like normal feminist type statements <clears throat> that have gotten her fairly strongly denounced as a trans exclusionary, exclusionary radical feminist. It's called a turf. I don't know if you've ever come across that. Anywho, feminism is complicated. And one of the things you see, if, if you're trying to like really wrestle with like, what are the issues they're identifying and their concerns over the years, uh, the early feminist movement in part led to alcohol prohibition in America. And it was feminists and mainline Christians kind of in partnership. It's really hard to pass an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It requires massive support across the United States. And they passed this amendment. And then 10 years later, they undid it, which required another amendment. So there was this massive shift. Like people realized this did not work. It actually caused a ton of problems. But one of the things you have to realize, like looking back, I think we're all like, yeah, that's like the dumbest idea ever. Like just banning a substance <clears throat> drugs but uh <laughs> like we all recognize that was horrible and and that's why you end up with a constitutional amendment undoing it 
But there was one that did at first. And uh, a few years ago, I was watching a, ser- a documentary by Ken Burns. He did, he did a three-part documentary on prohibition. And he was describing a little bit of the buildup. And it wasn't entirely novel, but it had never clicked. Like, it, I don't know if I'd really appreciate it until I was watching the documentary. Wow. Like, the reason prohibition was passed was because America was broken. I mean, there were, there were communities in America where upwards of like 50% of males were just drunk all day, every day. Like just total, like the men in America had checked out. They were just, and, and in some ways I think it started with self-medicating post-civil war. There's probably a lot of PTSD, heart, heartache, discouragement, uh, pointlessness. I mean, it's just like, I mean, there were millions of people involved yeah. in this war and it was horrific. And so you see the fallout over the, of that over the, you know, towards the end of the 19th century, but just tons of alcohol abuse eventually getting to the point where women plus uh, mainline Christians united. And by women, I just mean the feminist movement. Obviously a lot of these women were mainline Christians, but these, these kind of these blocks were the primary blocks that led to Literally in the United States Constitution, banning alcohol, the, the the sale or distribution or creation of alcohol. And so you have this amendment. It, it worked out horribly. It led to tons of violence. People were still getting drunk, but it just it led to a lot of uh, really unsafe moonshine. People were getting sick. People were dying. It was bad. About a decade later, they undid it. All that to say... The idea of men checking out is not novel. It really is a go back to Adam thing. But even in the United States, you see, wow, this is a huge problem 100 years ago. And it's part of what led to the feminist movement is there are men who are checked out. There are men who are abusive, you know, men abusing women, uh, using, abusing, manipulating, you know, physically abusing, sexually abusing. This is not new. It's it's a common sin. It's a widespread sin today. Um, and it was a big issue. And, and as, as much as, I'm going someplace with this. Feminism has some major flaws, but I do think it's important to recognize in some ways it was responding to a lot of, I don't think we would have had a feminist movement the way we have over the past 150 years if men hadn't abdicated. It was largely a response to men who were absent or dominating, um, as you noted Mm -hmm. a moment ago. And so there is, it doesn't mean the feminist movement always responded well. In fact, I think at, at some level they've, it's been horrible what feminism has done in some ways in American culture today, but it was responding to, I think, uh, uh, more fundamentally prior, the, the passivity of men. Um, but part of what feminism has done now is it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's devalued femininity by basically trying to measure the worth of women uh, in in the way we would typically measure the worth of man. So it's like, how much money do you make per hour? How educated are you, et cetera? And I'm fine with women being educated and working jobs, but the idea of evaluating someone's like value as a human by how much they make per hour is actually like horrifically demeaning and it's totally feminist feminism, like one on, 101. Have you ever heard like the 73 cents on the dollar type figure? Mm, let me make less. Yes, yes. And mm-hmm. uh, those numbers are troubling in themselves. They're not calculated particularly well. But what's really troubling is I'm like, why are we deciding how much people are worth by how much they make? Uh, you know, I went to school for computer science. At, at one point, I like built some clients for like, at, like $95 an hour. And then I started pastoring. 
and I didn't make ninety five dollars an hour. <laughs> Good clarification. Uh, yes, and so like I actually looked at a list once, and it was interesting. But like the top like ten earning fields. It was like computer scientist, software developer, some engineering things. Yeah, mostly like very STEM, math, physics type orientation. And then the bottom earning 10 fields are like social workers, you know, daycare teachers, and it included like clergy. <laughs> and I was like, I just went from a top 10 to a bottom 10. Sweet. And it, tend, it just turns out that the bottom 10 women tend to gravitate towards them, and the top 10 men tend to gravitate towards them. I happen to be a man. That was gravitating towards both. I, and maybe some women gravitate towards both. Awesome. I don't think an engineer who makes three times what I make is like a more valuable human being. So I could be like 33 cents on the dollar. I'm like, no, I, I chose. I feel like this is what God had for me. I don't feel any less valuable. Um, in fact, unless they're doing what God called them to do. I'm in a way of healthier, valuable position. Like you, you, it's most valuable when you're doing what God's called you to do. So feminism just has, they have like fundamentally problematic ways they view things. Mm. Um, and, and they perpetuated this, but part of what they've done, and this is a really long way of getting someplace, is there's been a devaluing of femininity, but also a sometimes recognizing sin of men, but then castigating anything that's like male or masculine as sinful and wrong. And there's like the broad toxic masculinity. Like how do we embrace, like embrace masculinity and say like, no, masculinity is not toxic. Sin is toxic. Like how would you go about differentiating like sin that maybe tends to be a weakness for men from like healthy masculinity? How would you step into that conversation? If somebody, if you're like, we need strong, healthy men. And they're like, you're just you know, a tool of the patriarchy or encouraging right. toxic masculinity, how would you differentiate? <laughs> uh, I think to the thing I mentioned earlier, um, men, I would say men, the decisions they make shouldn't benefit them. Okay. And I think if men did that, I don't think anyone would be complaining about, about toxic, max, toxic masculinity. Uh, it, it, I think at least on some level, it would be a self-fixing problem. Gotcha. Um, I think masculinity is not the problem. It's what men are doing with their masculinity. Um, we're using it for harmful, can be used very easily for harmful, um, selfish reasons. Um, and I think this people have a problem with, and it's so widespread. Right. Kind of to your drinking point, back and whenever the 50% of the guys are drunk. And, and uh, to be clear, 50 times, I don't remember the exact number, but yeah. something staggering. Yeah. A staggering number of, of people are, are drunk. You're like, wow, to fix this, we just need to get rid of alcohol, right? That might seem like a reasonable right. argument. And so with masculinity expressed in an unhealthy way. Just get rid of masculinity. Just, ah. just get rid of it. Yeah, good right? connection. But it's like, it's, well, no, it's like what we're doing with it is the problem. Men aren't stewarding their masculinity well, and they're using it for selfish gain. Um, generally speaking, um, and if men stop doing that, I think a lot of the issues would go away. Yeah, that is insightful. And I guess we start by trying to be healthy men and encouraging those around us. I uh, yeah. so to, and, to the men listening to the podcast. I don't know, like what, what's I mean. In, in nutshell, make decisions not mm. that are that are not self centered, but like yeah, go off two or three minutes. Yeah, How well, would I was you gonna. Us? I was gonna pose a question to you maybe yeah. about this the feminist movement. Oh yeah. Uh, is it simply, I mean, are, 
is it a response to a culture and system? The fact that you have to have a feminist movement, is that recognition that there's... Are you simply responding to something? Let me say it this way. Does the feminist movement implicitly validate the very problem they're trying to get around? Articulate that another way. Um, so it's kind of, again, I don't, I haven't thought a whole lot about this, but the feminist movement, um, is, try, is trying on some level to become the thing they have a problem with. Ah, I gotcha. Yeah. <clears throat> there, there is like this, like androgynous, again, there's kind of a rejection of masculinity and femininity, femininity. Hmm. And you see it kind of imploding with the current transgender stuff. So when you do away with gender, which is kind of part of their solutions, like do away with gender, but it actually ends up not serving men or women well. Right. Um, it, it is, and it's a complicated movement because I, I think some feminists were responding to uh, abuse in the home or, or, or whatever. And the fact that like way back in the day, most women didn't own property. Most women, I mean, they didn't right. have the right to vote, et cetera. And so there was like a, a bit of, I, I think at times, maybe even like a, hey, we need to help influence policy because some of us are being harmed and like nobody's thinking about us. Uh, but also it's important to recognize it's not like the feminist movement was a bunch of saints. I think it was often people who were in sin and people who wanted to grab a hold of power to exact retribution or to just feel liberated and you know often our pursuit of liberation is really driven by rebelliousness and not some sort of healthy uh, we want to serve people well it's complicated because we live in a really broken world uh but yeah i'm not sure i totally understood your question so i just <laughs> well maybe i can say it this way yeah so in in um in business and advertising um, so I'll take the Samsung and Apple, uh, not too long ago, there were some Samsung ads, I think that would talk about Apple in like a comparison way. Okay. Samsung tried to make their products look better in relation to Apple. I think they went so far as to like clearly state it was an Apple product they were comparing. Um, and at that point on some level, you're already lost when you, when you talk about your competition and try to tell and try to say that you're better than your competition the fact that you even have to bring the comparison gives the leg up to the competitor. If Coke is trying to tell everybody how they're better than Pepsi, you are implicitly saying that Pepsi is good um, or better um, on some level. And I wonder if women, femininity, by talking about men and saying, you know, we need to do what they do, mm. um, we need to be better than them or we can be equal, I'm not You're sure setting yourself up for failure, for sure. It does it, but is it like just? Are you? Are you? I think it. It seems like a, a flawed, flawed from the get-go. Um, instead of women owning what they're good at, and what they excel in, men owning what they're good at and what they excel in. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I gotta find and a that was way like, to articulate that. That was definitely but. a prominent flaw in the second wave of feminism. So I think circa 1960s, 70s, there was this uh, 
Sometimes the verbiage said like women should be empowered to be free to make the choices they want to make for their lives. Right. Which I largely would be like, sure. Like if I had a daughter, I'd be like, Hey, like, what do you feel like God has for you? Like, I want to, um, and I have a number of sisters and like, certainly like they've been empowered to make healthy choices, et cetera. But that would sometimes be the verbiage, but the implicit focusing on metrics, like how much money do women make per hour compared to men would do a couple of things, but one would be like, Oh, you can't be a daycare worker. You have to be an engineer. Like, what if she wants to be a daycare worker? So it was this weird. And then, then furthermore, it really led to a fairly wholesale. There, there is second wave feminism and abortion are largely linked and you'll even see it flaring up again right now. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon, May 3rd. Is that today? May 3rd. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it was yesterday, uh, a draft of an opinion in the Dobbs ruling was leaked. Did you hear about that? Oh yeah. You were on a a, Mm -hmm. a thread that I saw. Um, And so like, it's going to bring up the abortion thing again. This really second wave feminism. So think like Hillary Clinton, like that era of women, which is, you know, now in their seventies or eighties, but this is going back 30, 40, Mm -hmm. 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 and boomers, people that maybe are now just like in their you know, 60, but they kind of caught this sense of like, yeah, like this androgynous, we have to be like men and we can be like men. Anything you can do, I can do better type. But what it caused was this rejection of what God had really like, not to say a woman can't be a great engineer. Awesome. And if there's a woman who's an awesome engineer, sweet, like yeah. have her help fly us to Mars. Um, but there was this rejection of what is special and unique about women in terms of like mothering. And I actually just read, I read an article about Amy Comey Barrett. Is it Coney or Comey? Fail. ACB, uh, a Supreme court justice. Mm -hmm. And one of the brilliant things, I actually want to read the quotation. Let's take a break and then we'll come back and resume. Amy Kobe Barrett. I'll find out what her actual uh, (laughs) middle name is. Okay, so Um, I forgot to look up her name. (laughs) The uh, Amy Coney. It is Coney. Coney. Okay. Um, So she said this, and I I thought it was impressive. So Amy Coney Barrett is a remarkable and admirable woman. Like she. Uh, super successful academically. Then she went on to clerk for an appellate judge in DC and then for Antonin Scalia, a Supreme court justice, a a remarkably remarkable justice in his own right. And she, she clerked for him. Um, She went on to do, she taught at Notre, Notre Dame. So she taught law there. So that's South Bend, Indiana. In addition to this, so she has an interesting background. She's Roman Catholic, but she was part of like this, uh, community of Roman Catholics that are charismatic. And in a lot of ways, I, I wonder if she is born again. Cause like, there's really like a emphasis on relationship with Jesus and like healthy community and spiritual mm-hmm. gifts, like prophecy and tongues and things like that. She's talked about that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's the community she's out of. And she was, mm-hmm. she helped, she was like on the board for their like private school for a while. Yeah. And she, she grew up in that community and has continued in it. Sometimes she's, she's mocked for being like some like, cultic type figure, but she's, it's actually just like a charismatic Catholic community, very yeah. conservative Catholics. But uh, what was I going to say? Oh, she's like super bright, super successful. She has seven kids maybe. 
And at one point, she they were adopting a child that they had been in the process of adopting for a while. And when it like was coming through, she was pregnant again with another child. So it's just like a lot happening. And her husband is a United States, uh, uh, like a some sort of attorney. Like so, he prosecutes cases. He's a lawyer himself. And here's a, a quotation from her regarding that season. She said, "Raising children and bringing John Peter, adopting him." were things of value, of the greatest value that I could do right then, even more valuable than teaching or being a law professor. I'm just like, that is so beautiful. Like in the midst of a lot of hard work and using her various gifts, she kept like a healthy orientation of what really mattered. And the feminist movement on the whole totally forfeited a healthy embrace of like godly values. And it wasn't just like a forfeit of godly values. It was a forfeit of godly values that like women have been wired for. I'm not saying every woman needs to get married and have kids, but you can't deny by just considering basic biology that women have been wired for bearing children and raising children. And when you reject that and and demean that, and, and the second wave feminist movement was flying the banner of you can women should be free to do whatever they want. But then if you got a low paying job or if you stayed home to mother, you're like a bad woman. You're like betraying women. Cause you're like messing with these stats and women have to like beat men. And it's just like, it was, it's really messed up. It's really perverted. And, and I'm sure there were some women who were largely doing it out of hurt because maybe they'd been ditched by a husband and now they had no degree and they couldn't really earn much money, but it was done by a lot of women who really just in rebellion and sin rejecting God's design and not just, I could totally get making some sort of case for like, hey, we got to find a way to help women who are being left high and dry by bad husbands. Like, hey, let's Stop try to help them. But, and that might have fed aspects of the feminist movement, but the feminist movement on the whole, especially the second wave, started like scoffing at and demeaning the most valuable thing a woman could do and like defining the value of women by their economic output, which is, it's actually like... It's really dehumanizing if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, men are performance objects and women are sex objects. Um, and one of them, one is okay and the other isn't right. uh, for some reason. Um, but we value men generally by like what they can do, by the performance they have. Um, but it's interesting that uh, women, they, they are... Kind of like the, you know, everyone needs to talk about Trump. Yes. I mean, they still do. Every day, all day. <laughs> um, a lot of people still talk about him, which is interesting. I don't, I mean, I haven't been around that long, so I can't say throughout history, but I'd be curious to see like how, I don't remember past presidents being talked about this much still. He was pretty unique. Um, yeah. He was pretty unique. Um, my, my point being, you know, if people who didn't like Trump, they just did well what they were passionate about instead of attacking trump i wonder if that would have gone better Mm. um and women you know with feminism i wonder if you know how much productive effort is spent attacking men uh versus just focusing on what women do well and pursuing that um you know it's, it's like the headspace thing like yep. when, when you're always trying talking about someone, you know, taking up headspace, it's like they've already kind of won. Right. You know? 
Yes. And feminism kind of seems to at least partially have that, that tone to it. Um, like the guys have already won, so to speak. I mean, that's totally dumbing it down. Right. But because they are always talking about it or, you know, talk about it a lot. Um, and I wonder if that's just, um, like slowed progress toward what they really want. Um, or maybe, yeah. Right. And it's, again, the feminist movement is really complicated. And, and I, I would say the way some people describe feminism, I'm like, I might be a feminist. <laughs> I just don't think it accurately describes the movement on, a, on the whole. Um, what you're definitely keying into is true. It's that they've, they've almost bought in, they've bought into a game that is like, will never actually really help women. They, they've bought into like a definition of a win that is it it overlooks like God's most significant design for women. So it's like you can't win. They can't win that game. Right. Um, there should be a separate like game. Design. Yeah. Yep. And part of what you just mentioned a moment ago that made me think of one other thing. We should actually wrap up our conversation soon. Um, but have you ever heard of the Barbara Streisand effect? Yes. Yes. So I was thinking that. In light of the Supreme Court stuff, just in the past 24 hours with the leak regarding Dobbs and potentially overturning Roe v. Wade and Casey, uh, the Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the uh, the court is overly politicized. Like, it's just super political, which is disappointing to me. I'm like, hey, at some level, I realize that it's not always black and white, but judges are not trying to make law. They ought not to be. They're just trying to clarify, like, what is this law? And if we don't like it, pass a constitutional amendment, get Congress to pass a different law, et cetera. Like, even in this case, say Roe v. Wade is overturned, clearly. All that means is that states are now free to ban abortion or not. Like, it's just, it becomes a, it's actually a political issue. But what the court is doing is not political. The court is just trying to rule is there actually something in the Constitution that would prohibit states from considering this political issue? And Roe is terrible law. The answer is no. So I do hope the court overturns it. But in the conversation becomes there's tons of protests and people talking about the politics of it. The same thing with the nomination processes. Uh, I would say Jackson, the, the, the recent nominee who just got uh, confirmed weeks ago to mm -hmm. replace Breyer at the end of this term, wasn't too bad, although there were some disappointing aspects, but especially like ACB, Amy Coney Barrett and, and uh, Brett Kavanaugh, a little bit with Gorsuch, but not tons. Like these are made into like these massive political issues. And it's just disappointing. I'm like, how do we undo that? And it seems to some extent the best way to depoliticize it is just to ignore those conversations and let some fringe few say, it's, oh, this is all political and just be like, what? Are, it's not. And just don't engage because the more you defend, the more you just draw attention to the politics of the court. I don't know. It's, it's frustrating, but the only way to really win the game is to stop playing. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's hard though. Cause you want to step in and be like, no, it's not that. But then you're just like, you're making it this big discussion. It's hard. It, there's yeah. something that requires self-control mm -hmm. and perspective, mm -hmm. which are good qualities for men. Self-control yes. and perspective. We need more of that. <laughs> uh, so there were like two other conversation areas I had in mind, but we just don't have time for them today. So yeah, next time. Who knows? Yeah, next time. That would be fun. <laughs> this has been awesome. Thanks for coming yeah, on, yo. It's fun. And any final thoughts? Um, this has been great. Yeah, it's been fun chatting. It's been good. Thank you. <laughs>